Chapter 6 Equal to an Ordnance Map of the Old Country The Wallbank Survey, 1880-1893 In the late 19th century, the Canadian state implemented one of the largest land enclosure projects in world history on the Great Plains. The lands and resources of the northern prairies had been a commons, largely governed by indigenous law and shared between nations through international agreements. The enclosure of the prairies, and indeed the entire continent, transformed common lands and resources into private property and transferred indigenous land to, mostly, white men. The 1885 uprising against the Canadian state in what is today Saskatchewan can be seen, in the words of economic historian Irene Spry, as a last despairing attempt to protect the commons, on which Indigenous people depended. Although some scholars falsely characterize common property regimes as particularly prone to environmental overexploitation, Users of commons historically tend to carefully regulate their actions to ensure sustainable use. While First Nations lost nearly everything to this enclosure and were intentionally excluded from newly imposed property rights, settlers claimed the spoils and benefited from the newly imposed colonial legal order. The ecological and cultural catastrophes of this period, the collapse of bison herds being the most spectacular and tragic, were not primarily due to the introduction of horses and guns, but to the large influx of settlers who did not care about indigenous law and to colonizing powers that facilitated their progress with surveyors, police, and railways. How were commons transformed into private property and how were indigenous lands transferred to white people? Most such transformations involved a period of disordered, dysfunctional legal pluralism. Chaotic social, political, and environmental conditions marked the transition from common to private property in many colonial contexts, including the one described in the previous chapter. The laws in the land is not primarily about the ways in which white people took indigenous lands, though the subject is addressed. It is instead the story of a fraught transition from common to private land and resource tenure under the Indian Act. This chapter focuses on the most concerted effort by the DIA to complete the transition it had tentatively begun during the 1870s in Gahnawage. The words commons and enclosure are European in origin, but indigenous peoples throughout northeastern North America employ a term to describe similar phenomena, the dish with one spoon. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy itself was based on the principle that the founding nations would peacefully share the dish of their fields and hunting territories. Peace agreements between the Confederacy and other nations also used this metaphor to express the way in which they would harmoniously share a territory and its bounty. And the Gayanerech Goa, the Great Law of Peace, also focuses on it. Given that indigenous nations invest themselves so deeply in the diplomatic and political language of peaceful sharing, it should come as no surprise that around the world their critiques of colonialism zero in on the unwillingness of Europeans to accommodate, tolerate, and share. This chapter discusses the Wallbank Survey of the 1880s, a DIA attempt to radically transform Gahnawage land and people and to make them more visible to the state. Unique in Canadian history, 
The survey was a government project whose purpose was to completely redistribute reserve lands that were already fully claimed and occupied. New reserves on the prairies were subdivided around the same time, but these subdivisions were conducted after prairie lands had already been symbolically and legally enclosed, and thus did not involve the elimination of well-established indigenous property regimes on the reserves themselves. The settler invasion had already all but eliminated the possibility of traditional ways of life before the reserves were subdivided. As we have seen, however, Gahnawage at this time was a community of between 1 and 2,000 people whose ancestors had occupied and worked a territory of some 12,000 acres for more than 200 years, for time immemorial if one considers hunting territories and villages in the region. It had its own well-established laws concerning land management. With the Wall Bank survey, the DIA's goal was to coercively simplify legal and environmental relationships, meaning that the state would be able to make sense of Gahnawage through its own bureaucratic, capitalist logic. This approach damaged Gahnawage, its people, and land in ways that were both intentional and unintentional. But this chapter also shows how Gahnawage Hironu responded to these incursions. As used in this chapter, enclosure does not necessarily refer to the literal installation of fences, but to the construction of a market in discrete, bounded parcels of land to the detriment of a non-commercial regime that favored the well-being of the entire community. In using this word, I make implicit comparisons with the enclosures of the British countryside that began during the 18th century and with similar processes later carried out around the world. In Britain, wealthy landowners used enclosure to dispossess peasants who owned land by customary tenure and to overturn ancient rights to common lands. Evicted from their farms, peasants became wage laborers. Their customary rights were based on unwritten laws, the result of centuries of local traditions, practices, beliefs, and norms. Historian E.P. Thompson notes that the first attacks on the English commons did not come from legal enclosures, but were related to the growth of towns and cities, which increased the demand for fuel and building materials, and rapidly raised the value of quarries, peat bogs, and gravel pits. Through the efforts of landowners who wished to remove peasants from their lands, Parliament extinguished most common rights between 1750 and 1850. During this period, English elites denigrated the peasants with the same language that was used to disparage and dispossess North American indigenous peoples. Lazy, wild, uncontrollable, poverty-stricken, and inexplicably content with their situation. The history of the British Empire can be understood as a global enclosure movement in which land that had been governed under indigenous law was transformed into lots owned in fee simple to the detriment of indigenous nations. The Wall Bank Boundary Survey Compared to many indigenous communities in Canada, which faced military invasion and other crisis, Gahnawage was a relatively stable and prosperous place in the early 1880s. But the decade was also marked by intensifying and interrelated incursions into Gahnawage lives and lands. 
Ghanawa Gehrono experienced territorial invasion in the form of the Canadian Pacific Railway, CPR, Bridge and Line, political invasion in the imposed band council system, and cadastral invasion in the form of the Wall Bank Survey, the focus of this chapter. Whereas Ghanawa Gehrono, who experienced these kinds of threats in the 1860s and 1870s, had made plans to move the community to a distant location. Most Gahnawagehronu of the 1880s no longer considered this option. In fact, all of these invasions hardened the resolve among Gahnawagehronu to defend their nation and lands, maintain their distinct identity, and resist outside attempts to eliminate their way of life. An important concern of Gahnawagehronu throughout the 1860s and 1870s was the shortage of firewood as well as the legal changes that would deprive poor people of this vital energy source. By the 1880s, firewood was scarce and expensive in Gahnawage, and the situation was becoming increasingly severe. Due to this lack of fuel, Agent Cherrier said that many of Gahnawage's poorest were wintering in the United States. He also identified the shortage as the root cause of the barn burnings, since the arsonists targeted people who most Gahnawagehronu saw as non-Indians with no right to live there. To Cherrier and other DIA officials, the blame lay squarely with defective Gahnawage governance, primitive customs, and obstructionist individuals. Since the problem was located squarely within the community, the solution had to come from the outside, a typical colonial approach. According to Cherrier, these periodical disasters show the necessity for introducing changes in the tenure of the seigneurie. The system of the community, which was well enough formerly, is out of date. A great number of the Indians being jealous and lazy always look with an evil eye on those who are prospering, even amongst those of their nation, and will be led to regard the goods and earnings of others as their own. Cherrier here packs his sentences with racist stereotypes. Indigenous people are lazy, jealous, opposed to progress, savage, hopeless on their own, and sinfully small-minded and selfish in the context of their primitive communitarianism. The DIA had long planned to carry out a subdivision survey to accomplish changes in the tenure of the seigneurie. It knew it had little support among Gahnawagehrono, but it never intended to respect their views. Racist stereotypes repeated ad nauseum in departmental correspondence ensured that only the dominant settler colonial viewpoint would be taken seriously. The chiefs consistently opposed a cadastral survey, survey of lot boundaries, of Gahnawage territory because they knew that it would be used to diminish their sovereignty. However, they frequently asked for a boundary survey, as this would help to define the border around unconceded parts of their territory, which had been left undefined for so long that nobody knew exactly how much land had been taken by unscrupulous settler neighbors. In the past, the chiefs had directly asked the DIA for a boundary survey. In other cases, the Indian agent had requested the survey on their behalf. In 1874, Agent Joseph Pinsonneau wrote, Permit me to draw your attention to the boundary line between the Kaknawaga Indian Reserve and the Whites. Many Indians who have land in the vicinity of the Whites complain that they encroach on their lands, and as no boundary line can be found, it is desirable that such a line should be established, so that the Whites should not encroach on their lands. 
The DIA at the time agreed to initiate a boundary survey, but only in the context of a subdivision survey, an idea the chief soundly rejected. In April 1880, the Gahnawaga Council of Chiefs once again asked for a boundary survey, that the lines of our property and of the Canadians which adjoins ours should be revised because it has been reported for many years that these neighbors have encroached on our land. By the 19th century, two-thirds of the seigneury created in 1680 had been conceded to white farmers, and its border had been modified a number of times, rarely in favor of Gahnawage Hironu. Gahnawage leaders often raised their concerns with colonial officials about illegal concessions and other settler incursions, and they sent several delegations to London to seek support on the issue. With the abolition of the seigneurial system in 1854 and the 1860 cadastre abrégé of the seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis, conceded land was eventually turned into freehold tenure and legally detached from Gahnawage, an action that Gahnawage Hironu have contested ever since. Aside from the conceded seigneurial land lost after 1854, the integrity of this subsequent boundary was also a serious issue because of gradual encroachment by neighboring farmers. The DIA finally agreed to conduct the boundary survey in 1880, but not before asking one more time if the chiefs also wanted the reserve itself to be surveyed and subdivided. The chiefs again declined. Announcing tenders for the boundary survey in June 1880, the department accepted the bid of William McClee Wallbank, provincial land surveyor. On August 12th, he and his staff were in the field. Wallbank's initial contract was to run the boundary survey, but it became clear later that the department intended to have Wallbank also do the cadastral and subdivision surveys against the wishes of the chiefs and most in the community. Wallbank, 1856-1909, was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, the son of Matthew William Wallbank, a lawyer and conservative member of the Newfoundland House of Assembly. The younger Wallbank studied architecture and civil engineering at Queen's University in Ireland and graduated from McGill University in Montreal in 1877 with a degree in civil and mechanical engineering. He spent his adult life in Montreal, where he worked as an architect, engineer, and land surveyor. Wallbank would later be involved in efforts to develop hydroelectric power generation at the Lachine Rapids. At the start of the boundary survey, he was 24 years old. In December 1880, Wallbank declared all field operations for the boundary survey complete and submitted his final report. He complained that the survey had been difficult for a number of reasons, first of which was the lack of relevant maps. He had searched high and low for a reliable map or field notes on the boundary but could find none. He concluded that none had ever been made. His second complaint concerned the hostility of white farmers who had gradually taken land from Gahnawagehronu over many decades. Since the ground had been in possession of the families of the settlers for over 100 years, they were loath to give us any information respecting its limits, wrote Wallbank. He lamented that the farmers were willing to swear anything advantageous to them. He had no complaints about Gahnawagehrona resistance to his work. They desired a defined boundary line, and their white neighbors did not. It would seem, then, 
that they scored a small victory in finally achieving a survey of their external borders, but it was later revealed that Wallbank had run only parts of the boundary line. In 1895, DIA land surveyor W.A. Austin wrote that Wallbank had failed to submit adequate documentation related to the boundary survey and that he had admitted to leaving the work unfinished due to conflicts with interested parties. Thus, Wallbank did not do the job he had been contracted to do, and departmental officials allowed that to happen. The boundary survey was not of much interest to the DIA, and it would quickly become evident that it was just a warm-up for the cadastral and subdivision surveys it intended to impose on Gahnawage. Meanwhile, the undefined boundary would continue to cause problems for Gahnawage Hronu. After claiming to have completed the boundary survey, Wallbank suggested that the next logical step was subdividing the entire reserve and that he was well-placed to carry out this task. It is very likely that Wallbank had taken the job knowing that it would ultimately also include the subdivision. He believed that such a project would be in the interest of civilizing Gahnawage Hronu. But he warned that since they had not yet reached that level of development, they could not be trusted with full property rights. In this way, Wallbank repeated the racist dogma of the DIA as justification for whatever he would do next. Lead up to the DIA subdivision survey. The fact that Gahnawage Hironu were generally opposed to surveying and subdividing their territory should not be construed as indicating that they were unfamiliar with the concepts. Signorial land concessions were a kind of territorial subdivision, and Gahnawage Hironu were aware that these concessions were responsible for the loss of most of their land. Already in 1839, Superintendent of Indian Affairs Duncan C. Napier had raised the idea of subdivision. He made an offer to Gahnawage leaders to have the territory divided into 30 to 50 arpent lots, one for each head of family. The chiefs and members of the council refused, saying that this would have been feasible only when the land was still largely forested and not yet claimed by individuals. Even if the subdivision had been technically possible, the chiefs objected to it on the basis that it would lead to territorial loss and land degradation. The response of the chiefs also shows their concern for maintaining the integrity of the territory and nation. A similar idea for subdivision was raised in an 1856 petition by a handful of Gahnawage Hronu who wanted the right to cut and sell Gahnawage wood to white people. Indian agent Edouard Narcisse de Lorimier made it clear that theirs was a minority opinion and that such a project would be a great misfortune to Gahnawage Hronu. Nothing came of the request. In the 1870s, a number of the largest landowners again petitioned for a cadastral survey in Gahnawage, but their requests were only for surveys to define existing property boundaries, not to establish new ones, subdivision. There is no evidence that anyone in Gahnawage ever asked for a subdivision survey. Nevertheless, the DIA informed the chiefs in 1874 that a subdivision was in the works. The chiefs sent two representatives to Ottawa to ask for details and to ascertain if that provision will be better for the management of our affairs than what we shall decide upon. The department answered, 
Provided the Indians desire it, the reserve will be surveyed into farm lots so that each family may have a homestead farm with regular boundary lines. If the Indians have any propositions relative to this matter, they should submit them to the superintendent general by letter. The principal chiefs sent the DIA a powerfully worded response, stating that they had a duty to protect and represent those who would suffer most from a subdivision, the poor majority. The lots created by a subdivision, they argued, would be small and of uneven quality, and with the loss of the common wood and pasture resources, the community would no longer be viable. In February 1878, in the middle of a cold winter and a wood shortage exacerbated by both DIA action and inaction, Agent Cherrier informed the department that he now had the names of 60 Gahnawa Gehronu who supported a subdivision. He noted that the only people who favored it did not possess land and now could no longer cut wood on the lots of others. The subdivision scheme was floated again in 1880, this time by James P. Dawes, the Lachine industrialist whom the DIA had hired to arbitrate Gahnawage wood disputes. He was frustrated by his inability to settle the disputes and attributed his failure to the lack of defined lots. Wallbank made the same suggestion while working on the boundary survey saying that a subdivision survey could now be done very cheaply in connection with our survey. Indeed, the DIA fully intended to go forward with a subdivision survey after the boundary survey was complete, but worried about the reaction of Gahnawa Gehronu. DIA solicitor Zebulon A. Lash wrote to Dawes that subdividing the reserve would be rather a difficult matter to arrange as the reserve has been allowed to remain unsurveyed so long that it will no doubt cause considerable dissatisfaction when some of the land held by the present occupants is taken from them and given to others desirous of cultivating land but not having any to cultivate. Not mentioned here are the very real difficulties encountered by Gahnawa Gehronu, who had to deal with the fallout of DIA actions. The department showed no concern about this, but even from its colonial viewpoint, Lash's observation that the subdivision survey would be rather a difficult matter was an understatement, as Wallbank would soon learn. Why was the DIA so intent on subdivision? It publicly offered various reasons, and I have also identified a number of others on which it was less forthcoming. The DIA made five motivations known. Poor Gahnawagehronu land use, lack of protection for property owners, inability to resolve land conflicts, inegalitarian land distribution, and the need for enfranchisement. The first point suggested that Indigenous people let the land go to waste, that they did not exploit its full potential. This convenient argument was used against Indigenous peoples around the world to supposedly justify their dispossession and is still employed today. Non-Indigenous farmers and urbanites have long dismissed Indigenous agriculture as disorganized, irrational, and wasteful. The idea that Indigenous people were inefficient farmers also related to their portrayal as lazy, drunken, and uncivilized. 
These were powerful rhetorical tools for those who benefited from such caricatures, including land-rich Gahnawage Hironu and white residents of Gahnawage, who depicted themselves as simply wanting to farm and make a living, and their neighbors as wasteful, spiteful, violent, and irrational. Dawes suggested in 1880 that more and more land on the reserve was being cultivated, that most of the respectable Indians wanted to go into agriculture more extensively, and that a subdivision survey was needed to encourage this trend. Respectable Gahnawal Gehronu, according to him, were men who wanted to own and cultivate land for large-scale commercial purposes. But he believed it was impossible for them to farm successfully under the present conditions of land ownership. The department's second justification for subdivision proclaimed the necessity of protecting property owners. Some historians contend that Canada's nation-building project is best understood as the construction of a liberal edifice founded on property rights. Within such a context, Indigenous land law and practices came to represent the exact opposite of what the nation-builders were working to establish. Forging a nation-state on the security of property holders depended on the creation of rhetorical and legal distinctions between regimes based on law and lawless savagery that supposedly reigned outside of the boundaries of the state. The very existence of a settler colonial regime based on property depended on narratives in which law and individualist property holding was absent. Critical legal geographer Nicholas Blomley describes the construction of this opposition. Inside the frontier lie secure tenure, fee-simple ownership, and state-guaranteed rights to property. Outside lie uncertain and undeveloped entitlements, communal claims, and the absence of state guarantees to property. Inside lies stability and order, outside disorder, violence, and bare life. DIA documents from the late 19th century presented Gahnawage as a place of chaos and violence where good people simply could not succeed. Department officials frequently cited wood stealing as an example of Gahnawage Hironu lawlessness and the natural consequence of the absence of property rights. Survey and subdivision constituted a bold attempt to make manifest what previous orders in council and laws had failed to bring about. The third justification for subdivision was that it would enable the DIA to resolve land conflicts between Gahnawa Gehronu, something it had failed to do in a number of cases. Of course, it bears repeating that the situation was generated by the department's own decision to take on this role at the expense of Gahnawa leaders and law. According to Deputy Superintendent General Lawrence Van Kugnet, The problem was that lands had been taken up without reference to the rights of other Indians, by individual Indians on the reserve from time to time, and the meets and bounds of the locations so taken up had not been defined. Given this, innumerable disputes were constantly occurring between the occupants of adjoining locations as to their respective rights to certain portions of the locations, and it was impossible to decide as to the rights of the respective parties unless a regular survey was made of the locations thus occupied. By insisting on colonial law, the DIA had created the problems that it described, problems that it also exaggerated to justify a cadastral survey and subdivision. 
DIA officials also frequently emphasize the unfair nature of current land distribution in Kahnawake as a reason for the subdivision. In 1886, the Montreal Daily Witness ran a story on Kahnawake that underscored the supposed problem of land inequality and the goal of fixing it. According to Wallbank, quoted in the article, the land had been common to all, and a man occupied just what be considered suited him. Thus, one holding might consist of but three or four acres, while another might run up to 140 acres. This seems to have caused dissatisfaction, and the government ordered the survey. Whereas, of course, there was some dissatisfaction about land inequalities, Wallbank did not mention that most Kahnawagehronu did not accept the DIA solution. Years after the survey, Van Kugnet wrote that complaints were made by those Indians who had no lands that the land on the reserve had been monopolized by those who were able to purchase them or who had taken them up years ago without reference to the rights of those who were as much entitled to share in the land on the reserve as those parties were. Like Wallbank, Van Kugnet failed to mention that the Gahnawage Hronu who complained requested not land redistribution, but enforcement of Gahnawage laws that would result in more egalitarian sharing of land. Minister of the Interior and Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, Edgar Dudney, similarly made much of these egalitarian goals when defending the Wallbank survey in the House of Commons in 1890. The reason for the survey... Dudney declared, was that some of the more advanced Indians took up larger portions of the reserve than others thought they were entitled to, and they believed that the survey would give them more equal portions. The idea of giving everyone an equal share of the land greatly appealed to Canadian government officials, who were also deeply engaged in colonizing the prairies, using a model patterned after the U.S. homesteading ideal, which made 160-acre lots available to white men. Although this project had certain egalitarian aims, it was grounded in the disenfranchisement and displacement of Indigenous peoples, and it excluded most women and people of color. Similarly, in Gahnawage, equality may have been a stated goal, but even if one ignores the explicit exclusion of most women, egalitarian land ownership was not a realistic outcome. It is also telling that the DIA felt that it could solve a land disparity problem by eliminating common property. The final stated reason for the Wallbank survey was enfranchisement. The supposed mandate of DIA officials was to work themselves out of their jobs by assimilating Indigenous people and eliminating their nationhoods. They saw themselves as protecting, educating, and guiding First Nations on the path from barbarism to civilization. Once this was complete, First Nations would no longer exist, and the departure could be dismantled. The Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 had translated this desire into law by setting the standards that a male Indian must meet to discard his Indian status and gain the rights of a non-Indigenous British subject. The Act stipulated that if he satisfied the requirements, literacy, moral uprightness, and freedom from debt, he would also receive up to 50 acres from his former reserve. First Nations immediately recognized this law as an attack on their land base, since each enfranchised person would be awarded a piece of their common land. Initially, almost no one opted to become enfranchised, so the DIA had the law revised to permit involuntary enfranchisement. 
In February 1882, when it announced the upcoming subdivision survey to Gahnawagehronu, enfranchisement was front and center. DIA clerk J.V. de Boucherville verbally informed Gahnawagehronu, It is hoped that, at no distant date, the band, or such members thereof as may be deemed fit for the change, will be enfranchised. The step proposed, namely the survey of their individual locations on the reserve, is an essential preliminary to their enfranchisement. In contrast to other indigenous communities, the DIA saw Gahnawage as one of the further advanced in civilization in Canada, and therefore intended to use it as an advertisement for the possibilities, benefits, and ultimate inevitability of enfranchisement. And since enfranchisement required private property, a subdivision would enable everyone on the reserve to be enfranchised at the same time. Aside from the DIA's stated reasons for subdivision, a number of unstated and contextual factors should be considered. One such factor is the concurrent territorial expansion of the Dominion of Canada that was underway in the 1870s and 1880s, during which the federal government facilitated crisis after crisis for Indigenous people on the prairies. Faced with rapid dispossession, competition from settlers, confinement on reserves, and a new legal regime that severely restricted their access to their lands and waters, Indigenous peoples could no longer feed and clothe themselves. Due in part to the genocidal policies in the United States, the southern bison herds had been extirpated by 1875, and the northern bison were mostly destroyed by 1883. The Canadian government was obligated by treaty to provide for suddenly impoverished First Nations, but rather than ensure that settlers did not infringe on Indigenous treaty rights, the DIA hurriedly drew up plans to subdivide reserves. Officials hoped that cutting reserves into small, individually owned lots would induce Indigenous people to grow their own food, thus saving the government money. Historian Sarah Carter describes this process in some detail showing how racist policies and actions led to even more Indigenous suffering and disempowerment. The Wallbank survey was done under the same policy rubric and possibly as a trial run for Western allotments. When Edgar Dudney defended the survey in the House of Commons in 1890, he linked it with the concurrent reserve subdivisions in the Northwest. Just as in Gahnawage, the more advanced Indians on the prairies took up larger portions of the reserve than others thought they were entitled to, and thus the department felt it had to intervene. Speaking of newly created reserves on the prairies, Dudney told the House, We have already commenced to subdivide our reserves there into 40-acre sections, and, as far as we possibly can, we are inducing the Indians to settle on their own sections of land, not compelling them to remain there if they do not like it. But when they get there, we find that they make their improvements and begin to look upon it as a home. Although, as we shall see, the Gahnawage subdivision did not go as planned, it might be considered a kind of test run for later subdivisions. Another unpublicized motive of the DIA was the expected construction of a CPR bridge spanning the St. Lawrence River between Lachine and Gahnawage. The only other crossing, the Victoria Bridge, was controlled by the Grand Trunk Railway. The CPR chose the narrows between Lachine and Gahnawage as the site for a bridge to be constructed from 1885 to 1887. 
Figure 6.1, a photograph, probably taken from the ferry, shows the village with the church in the foreground and the CPR bridge under construction in the background. The CPR and government officials worried about how the company would expropriate Gahnawage land if it did not have information about lots and landowners. They hoped that the subdivision would regularize landholding in time to facilitate expropriation for the CPR bridge and line. Wallbank knew in 1882 that the bridge and line through Gahnawage would be built and wanted to incorporate its trajectories into his subdivision plan so that his new lots would not be awkwardly bisected by the CPR project. The DIA, however, told him not to worry about it. James P. Dawes, initially hired to act as arbiter in conflicts over wood, was now tasked with arbitrating compensation for land expropriated for the bridge and line. An active booster of Lachine industrial development, with interests in banking, insurance, and hotels, Dawes was vice president of the Dominion Bridge Company, which was building the CPR Bridge. His overt interest in the matter explains his involvement in Gahnawage land issues long before the bridge itself was constructed. It also shows the important interconnected interests of Montreal industrialists and DIA officials in imposing colonial political and environmental values. Surveying for the bridge approach in Gahnawage began in 1884. Another factor that made a subdivision attractive to the DIA was its potential usefulness in dominating Gahnawage politics. The department wanted to replace the Council of Chiefs with an elected band council, but without a membership list of everyone the DIA considered to be a member of the Gahnawage band, there would be no list of electors. However, the subdivision survey would employ a tribunal to determine eligibility in land redistribution, and it would lay the groundwork for installation of the band council system in 1889. The DIA thus wished to use the subdivision survey to further its knowledge and control over Gahnawage land. Although the department did control the collective funds of Gahnawage Hironu, it had no way to manage or even know about the status of individual lots except through its agent and whatever information the chiefs were willing to divulge. DIA officials never saw Gahnawage law as coherent and legitimate, which merely heightened their confusion about Gahnawage Hironu actions and words. Lacking both maps and a membership list for Gahnawage, the DIA was unable to see the land and its people in the way that it wished. A subdivision survey would help to eliminate Gahnawage land law and make its land and people visible and thus governable to the DIA. One final possible motive for initiating a subdivision may have been the substantial amount of money in the band account. The Sulpician Order had borrowed $3,333 from Gahnawage to finance the construction of the Towers of Notre Dame Church, today Notre Dame Basilica, in 1844, the largest church in North America at the time of its completion. After a protracted court battle between the federal government and the Sulpicians over the principle of this loan, it was finally paid to Ottawa on behalf of Gahnawage in 1883 along with interest. The Gahnawage Band Fund also received a payment of $10,039 in 1881, 
supposedly the seigneurial indemnity for losses incurred by the Seigneurial Act of 1854. More research is required to follow the money trail, but the fact that the Gahnawage account was flush with cash at the moment is highly relevant, since the subdivision was expensive. Gahnawage Hironu may not have been told about the money until it was spent. The DIA controlled Gahnawage's finances and, without community approval, decided to earmark the money for the subdivision. Had the cash not existed, it is unlikely that the DIA would have initiated the project. The Wallbank Subdivision Survey In February 1882, Deputy Superintendent General Lawrence Van Cugnet sent J.V. de Boucherville, a clerk normally in charge of Indian land sales, to Gahnawage to inform the chiefs that the department intended to subdivide the territory. De Boucherville told the chiefs that the DIA was doing so with a view to tickets covering each location being issued to those who would be entitled to the same. Under the present system, he explained, it was very difficult to protect their individual holdings from trespass, and it was hoped that at no distant date the band or such members thereof as might be deemed fit for the change contemplated would be enfranchised and that the survey of their individual locations on the reserve was an essential preliminary to their enfranchisement. De Boucherville's announcement was translated into Ganyankeha, and he reported that the chiefs had manifested their contentment with the plan and their hope that the survey would be carried out quickly. Of course, there is no reason to believe that the chiefs were pleased by de Boucherville's announcement since they had always opposed any subdivision plan. The DIA regularly misrepresented the views of indigenous leaders to give its own projects an air of legitimacy. In its annual report for 1882, it misrepresented Gahnawage public opinion by declaring that the survey is greatly appreciated by the band generally. Even if some chiefs did cooperate once they realized that the project could not be stopped, they were certainly not as content as de Boucherville claimed. The sole leader who appears to have felt genuine enthusiasm for the survey was Chief Skatsanje, Joseph Williams, 1846-1885, a young, wealthy trader whose father had done considerable business in Germany, selling Indian curiosities and crafts. He had been chosen as a chief in 1878, but stepped down in October 1880, when he lost popular support. The DIA, which saw him as an ally, refused to accept his resignation and helped him to keep his position until September 1883. In exchange for DIA backing, Scott Sanjay helped to facilitate Wallbank's work and wrote a letter to de Boucherville, in which he downplayed Gahnawage Hironu opposition to the survey. He lived in one of the fanciest houses in the village and owned 103.65 acres outside the village, which were valued at $1,127. As someone who possessed significant wealth and land, he was willing to work with the DIA, which recognized him as an ally in the community. At first, he seemed to enjoy popular support, but when he lost it, the department propped him up to ensure that it could continue with the survey. Van Cugnet informed Prime Minister John A. Macdonald in April 1882 that the Iroquois Indians of Kaknawaga have recently signified their consent to the lands comprised in the reserve, owned by them being subdivided by survey into locations for each family 
and inasmuch as this subdivision is a necessary preliminary to the enfranchisement of an Indian band. According to Van Cugnet, everything was in place to begin the survey, including the consent of the Indians, which was never given or legally required under the Indian Act. He recommended Wallbank for the job. At least one other surveyor inquired about the contract, but the DIA never requested tenders. A few days later, Van Cugnet gave Wallbank the go-ahead and asked how he intended to proceed. Wallbank duly submitted a hastily prepared subdivision plan, which the DIA accepted without serious scrutiny, and he immediately got to work. He opened an office in Gahnawage and put three teams in the field, each consisting of a surveyor and two Gahnawage Hironu assistants. He expected to complete the job during 1883, but it dragged on well beyond that year due to complications he probably should have foreseen. Gahnawage Hironu were often openly hostile to the project, and Wallbank found that without their assistance, it was very difficult to determine boundaries between lots. Nor did Gahnawage law see land in terms of bounded territories that belonged to only one person, so Gahnawage Hironu saw some people as having rights to the same piece of land in one season and others in another season, for one land use and not another, and also perceived boundaries as shifting over time. Thus, Wallbank was probably asking questions about lots and boundaries in a way that took no account of Gahnawage law and history. Another possible reason why so many Gahnawage Hironu chose not to help him. Despite the delays and cost overruns, Wallbank found time to involve himself in organizing an agricultural and industrial exhibition in Gahnawage beginning in 1882. For him, the survey was simply one part of a larger civilizing project, and he was interested in all aspects of it. He used the opportunity of the 1883 Gahnawage Agricultural Exhibition to display plans of former tribal occupation, as well as his own recently drawn maps of the reserve. He was also an organizer of a farming competition in the spring of 1883, where prizes were given to the steady workers. Outsiders had their prejudices shaken when a number of Gahnawage Hironu compared favorably with the best among themselves, and the competition led to no act of excess. Wallbank also involved himself with local issues by imposing Christian conceptions of right and wrong. For example, he attempted to teach Gahnawage merchants that it is not the correct thing to sell on Sundays, explaining to them what they were laying themselves open to in not closing their shops on Sunday. He did not specify what these consequences might be. Cherrier was appreciative of Wallbank's help on all these fronts and declared that his presence among the tribe is productive of much good. When Van Cugnet visited Gahnawage in the summer of 1883 to inspect Wallbank's work, he found matters generally in a very satisfactory condition there. A columnist for the Catholic world who visited Gahnawage while the survey was underway was informed that the project was the brainchild of Prime Minister John A. MacDonald himself. Wallbank knew that his project had support at the highest levels of the Canadian government, and he was genuinely enthusiastic about its potential to demonstrate how to transform Indians into enfranchised landowners and farmers. Wallbank hoped that he could subdivide the reserve into 50-acre lots, which would then be allocated to eligible people. 
The larger the lots, the more attractive the project would be to potential owners, but large lots also meant that fewer people would benefit from the survey. Since the civilizing project of the DIA involved turning indigenous people into farmers, the lots needed to be large enough for commercial agriculture. But Wallbank was not a farmer and did not know how big the lots would need to be, so he began his survey by measuring out and mapping the existing lots as best as he could. Although he was conducting the survey on the fly and according to a vague general plan, its overall purpose was abundantly clear. As Agent Cherrier put it, the survey would be accomplished with a view to a fair distribution of the land being made and the location tickets being issued to the Indian occupants. This step, it is hoped, will be eventually followed by the enfranchisement of the majority, if not of the whole, of the band. The goal, in other words, was the end of Gahnawage as an indigenous community and nation. Everyone would be enfranchised, and Gahnawage would become a town much like any settler town. And then the DIA would follow the model established there to destroy other First Nations. After having surveyed and mapped many of the existing lots by June 1884, Wallbank began the process of valuing the lots and their improvements, such as buildings and fences. The DIA instructed him not to proceed as he would if the lots were off reserve. Instead, he was to value them based on a land market in which only Indians could buy from each other. This racist decision had the effect of making Gahnawage valuations much lower than those for similar lots on non-reserve land, and it had important negative economic repercussions for Gahnawage Hirono in both the short and long term. By December 1884, Wallbank had completed the survey of existing lots and plotted them on a map. Both his map and his record books are preserved by Library and Archives Canada. The map and the data contained in the record books form the basis of my geographic information system analysis, which were used to draw some of the maps for this chapter. A very complex composite, Wallbank's map shows existing lot boundaries, projected lot boundaries, and land use categories. In fact, it is so loaded with overlapping detail that it is difficult to decipher, so I have separated its information into the two maps that appear in Figure 6.4. The upper map, figure 6.4a, shows the irregular lots that Wallbank identified. The lower map in figure 6.4b shows Wallbank's projected lots, regular 30-acre polygons, that were to be given to each household head. Wallbank had by this time realized that 50-acre lots would produce too few in total for the number of eventual claimants, so he had settled on 30-acre lots. More on this below. The two maps in figure 6.4 give an easily digested picture of the radical transformation he planned. The third layer on Wallbank's map depicts seven land use categories, bush and hay, bush, bush and swamp, cultivated, pasture, beaver hay, and sugar bush. For unknown reasons, Wallbank did not use these seven categories in his reference books, which contain all the numerical data on each claimant and lot. In the reference books, he employed only five categories, cultivated, pasture, hay, bush, and sugar bush. So direct comparisons between the map and the reference books are hard to make. 
His map used various colors and patterns to delineate land use, but these are extremely difficult to discern because the colors have faded and the map is ripped and water damaged. In the winter of 1884-85, after having completed his survey of existing lots, Wallbank decided on a methodology to determine eligible heads of household who would receive a new lot. Knowing who was eligible would allow him to calculate the exact number of lots needed for the new property grid. To this end, Wallbank established a process by which anyone who claimed to be a head of household could present himself, and sometimes herself, to a tribunal consisting of the Council of Chiefs, the Indian agent, and Wallbank himself. Figure 6.5 shows the public notice that was read out at the entrance to the church after Mass to invite all persons claiming a right to share in the subdivision to file their claims at Wallbank Survey Office within 60 days of January 15, 1885. Claimants were asked a series of questions in person, and their answers were recorded on standardized forms. The questions were designed to gather information about each claimant, which could be used to disqualify people, as well as details about lots and improvements. Aside from the standard names, birthdates, and birthplaces, claimants were asked questions that reflected DIA concerns about race, sexuality, and absences from Canada. The tribunal was in operation from February until June 1885. Once all the claimants had appeared before the tribunal, Special meetings were held regarding disputed lands and other more complicated claims. The survey and tribunal aroused considerable interest in Montreal, as evinced by a Montreal Daily Witness article that included a transcription of all the questions on Wallbank's claim forms. The voluminous data produced by Wallbank's tribunal are valuable for learning about Gahnawage land and Gahnawage Hronu in the late 19th century, but the information is also problematic. The entire process, including the questions on the forms, was designed with colonizing intent and interest. There is no reason to believe that Gahnawa Gehronu had any input in framing the questions. Thus, it is likely that claimants often disagreed with the questions themselves. But there is no way to know this, because what they actually did say was not recorded. Instead, the tribunal used pre-selected English phrases to document their information, even if the claimant spoke in French or Gonyankeha, all compiled in the handwriting of one person. For example, for question 10, do you hold any land on the reserve and how did you acquire such land? The recorded answer is often no or yes, two pieces. And Wallbank admitted that often he did not attend closely to what claimants said. Although he himself was young and an outsider with limited knowledge of Gahnawage, he believes that any information I might get from the individual Indians would be very unreliable and inaccurate. For question 7, how long have you resided on the reserve? Some of the standardized answers were, all my life, or all my life except when at college, whereas individuals surely gave a much wider range of responses. Considering Wallbank's youth, inexperience, and lack of empathy for those whom he saw as uncivilized, it is likely that many Gahnawage Hironu claims are not fairly represented in his records. In addition, the questions did not take into account Gahnawage legal conceptions of ownership, and no doubt they frustrated and angered the people who were forced to reply to them. 
Nevertheless, there is no reason to think that Wallbank intended to falsify information. He just thought he was smarter and more reliable than everyone else. The tribunal process also allowed some Gahnawage Hronu to file claims in absentia. Wallbank mentioned people in New Orleans and Lake Superior who could not appear before the tribunal. To have their claims considered, they had to complete claimant forms in the presence of the British consul, mayor, or notary of the town in which they lived. But some absentees did not know that this was possible. At the time, 60 skilled Gahnawage Hronu boatsmen were in Egypt, participating in a British military mission to rescue a besieged colonial force in Khartoum. They had left Montreal in September 1884, only to receive word soon after that they should return home if they wished to participate in the land redistribution. Most did so immediately. On arriving in Montreal, one Gahnawage Hironu speaking for all the men told the Montreal Star that they would have stayed on longer had it not been for the subdivision. Obviously, Wallbank had not informed Gahnawage Hironu of his timetable in advance and had not provided them with a way to file their claims in absentia. If he had thought ahead and shared his plans with the community, these men might not have agreed to go to Egypt in the first place, or they could have made their claims before leaving. After all the claims were filed, the DIA, in consultation with the Department of Justice, reviewed the contested claims. These were claims for which at least one chief disputed a person's right to membership. This was the part of the tribunal in which Gahnawage chiefs were most involved. Their council had consisted of seven clan chiefs until that time, but the DIA had refused to allow several new chiefs to replace those who died in the years before the survey. The four remaining chiefs in 1885 were Sat de Louis Bova, Garadodu, Thomas Jocks, Sagoyontineta, Michael Montour, and Asanaze, Thomas Deere. Historian Gerald Reed determined that of 610 total claims, 513 men and 97 women, 175, 27%, were contested. Each of the four chiefs on the tribunal could either approve or contest every claim. Chief Skatsanje, an enthusiastic promoter of the survey, died in May 1885 and thus did not play a role in the tribunal decisions. After years of DIA interference, the chiefs had lost some popular support, and many Gahnawage Hironu opposed their involvement in the tribunal at all, but their involvement still gave the process a veneer of legitimacy. The chiefs participated in 15 special meetings of five to six hours each, and the DIA paid each of them one dollar per meeting. The purpose of these meetings was to determine whether applicants had a legitimate claim to a new lot and their decisions had long-term implications on whether these people and their families would be considered members of the band under the Indian Act. The chiefs unanimously agreed to reject 122 of the 175 contested claims, and the DIA generally concurred with their decisions. But in the other 53 contested claims, the chiefs could not reach consensus. It is nowhere stated how they arrived at their decisions, but it is evident that they and the department were not operating according to the same logic. Reed found that the main reasons the chiefs rejected claims were that claimants were underage men, non-widowed women, born elsewhere or out of wedlock, absent from Gahnawage for a long time, white or half-breed, or because they had parents who were born elsewhere. 
Final decisions on the 53 most difficult cases resulted from the back and forth between the chiefs and the DIA. But the chiefs had little real power. The DIA attempted to apply Indian Act membership and status rules, but officials found it impossible to adjudicate the racial provisions of the Act since they lacked local knowledge. Thus, they relied heavily on the knowledge and opinions of the chiefs to determine who would be excluded purportedly on the basis of racial criteria, but on many other factors as well. The Indian Act assumed that there was such a thing as Indian blood, a racist construct that the DIA had no consistent way of adjudicating. Thus, it usually took the chief's word on who was sufficiently Indian and who was not. It contradicted the chiefs only in the case of the Dolorimier family, whom most Kahnawage Hirono saw as white, but whose Indian status had been confirmed in 1834 by the Supreme Court of Montreal. The chiefs also wanted to exclude certain Kahnawage women who had married white men. However, pointing out that their marriages predated the 1869 Gradual Enfranchisement Act, which would have deprived them of their status, the DIA forced their inclusion. Aside from disputed claimants, approximately 130 cases of disputed ownership of lots came before the tribunal. Reed suggests that the chief's primary motivation was to limit the number of band members so that each would receive an adequate share of the small territory. But their decisions also reflected their own priorities and beliefs, to which the archival documents do not give us access. Resistance to the Wallbank Survey Kahnawage Hironu closely watched Wallbank's surveying activities and claims process, and the longer they dragged on, the more their opposition grew. The survey, however, coincided with events that circumscribed the ability of Kahnawage Hironu to resist it. Aside from the tightening noose of federal Indian legislation that repeatedly undermined Indigenous sovereignty and empowered the DIA, these events strengthened the DIA's hand in Kahnawage. When the Métis and their Assiniboine and Cree allies on the prairies rose up against the Canadian invasion and occupation of their lands in the spring of 1885, settler public opinion turned sharply against Indigenous peoples. Kahnawage Hironu surely took this antipathy into account as they registered their complaints about the survey that summer. In July 1885, only three months after the Indigenous Provisional Government on the Prairies had been crushed, some 50 Gahnawage Hironu sent the DIA a carefully worded petition in which they expressed concern over the long duration and high cost of the subdivision survey and asked for an investigation into the matter. They wrote, It is with anxiety that we look for the completion of said survey. We are inexpert in the nature of the work, but assuredly one acting faithfully should have finished it by this time, comparing to the small size of the seigneury. Although many opposed the survey regardless of how it was conducted, the petitioners strategically framed their argument in terms of Wallbank's technical competence and the expense of his operations. But when the department asked Wallbank for a response, he dismissed the petitioners as nothing but a few troublemakers. The complaint, he wrote, does not come from the respectable part of the tribe, but from some whom I have prosecuted for bringing intoxicants on the reserve, and is composed of some fifty or sixty of the most troublesome men of the tribe, and who take no interest in any matter except opposing all progress. 
Wallbank here was describing people who simply wished to live their lives as they thought best and who did not welcome his interference. He knew that the opposition to his work was deeply rooted and widespread, but in light of his serious technical and budget problems, he preferred to attack the credibility of the petitioners with familiar racist tropes about alcohol and irrationality. The work of the tribunal was mostly complete by the fall of 1885, but the DIA did not release its final decisions on disputed claims until the summer of 1886. As long as the claims remained in limbo, Wallbank could not start subdividing the reserve because he did not know how many lots would be needed. He urged the DIA to process the matter quickly, but to no avail. As he waited, he started marking out road allowances that would serve as the basis for the new grid, drew a provisional map of the new lots of approximately 30 acres each, and invited successful claimants to choose among them. He also invited owners of existing lots to review his valuations of their lands and improvements. These notices sparked another round of protests, this time mostly from large landowners. After two secret meetings in early June 1886, a group of Gahnawage Hironu sent the DIA a petition protesting the low valuations of their lands and the high cost of the survey. The petitioners were among the privileged few who owned extensive lands and who thus stood to lose the most from Wallbank's low valuations. These were people who had often supported DIA initiatives and perhaps realizing that it was on the verge of losing even its few local allies, the department cracked down. On June 25th, Wallbank and Indian agent Alexander Brousseau called a general meeting to denounce the petitioners and to announce a ban on unauthorized public meetings. Some landowners hired arbitrators to revalue their properties, but the DIA rejected this move. Van Kugnet stated that the valuation would be on the basis of values of such property in Kaknawaga as between Indian and Indian and not as between white people and he would make no exception to this rule. A project that would redistribute land from the wealthy to the landless poor should ostensibly have found some approval among the poor themselves, yet most of them opposed it. Whereas overt opposition came from large landowners, some small landowners did not want change either. A good example here is Ohyungodu, Angus Jacob, who added a defiant message in Gonyongkeha to his returned notice. Now you gentlemen, I answer, I like the way that I have. I do not sell my land. Ohyun Godu had failed to appear for the tribunal interviews the previous year. Wallbank listed him as the owner of a 1.03-acre lot of cultivated land valued at $13. It is not known what motivated Ohyun Godu, but he and other land-poor Gahnawage Hironu realized that the new property arrangement would criminalize woodcutting beyond one's lot and that this would deprive them of free fuel. It is also likely that many saw DIA interference as an attack on their independence and sovereignty and rejected it even if they could have benefited individually. In the fall of 1886, Wallbank began the actual subdivision of the land, which aimed to make his property grid a reality on the ground. By then, he had already assigned each of the projected 387 rectangular lots to an owner. The most difficult part of the process would be to transfer an irregularly shaped lot that was occupied to several new owners on different rectangular lots. 
He thus started by subdividing the Grand Park, a 506-acre swampy area on the west side of the territory known today as the Big Fence. But how would the more valuable, individually-owned lots be transferred to new owners? Since the department was legally obligated to compensate owners for improvements, they had to be paid for buildings, cleared land, fences, and orchard before the new lots could be taken up by their various owners. This process promised to be extremely difficult, time-consuming, and expensive, and this on the heels of a subdivision survey that had already gone far over time and over budget. The department was worried about delays and spiraling costs. DIA surveyor W.A. Austin wrote in September 1886 that all the time spent by Wallbank surveyors, who worked mostly during the warm seasons, would have stretched into five full years of employment for a single surveyor. He quoted an 1882 letter from Wallbank which noted that the subdivision survey would be finished in just one year at a cost of $10,000. In 1886, Wallbank had already charged the DIA $15,000. After Wallbank staunchly defended his expenditures and timeline, citing numerous unforeseen complications and stating that the project could not be compared to any other, Austin went to Gahnawage to inspect his work. His subsequent report expressed a great deal more sympathy toward Wallbank and his justifications for time and money spent. Austin reported that Wallbank had laid out 40 lots and several roads, which left about 237 miles of lines left to run. He estimated that the remaining fieldwork would be finished by the end of August 1887. Early in 1887, Austin again came to Wallbank's defense, saying that although the survey had been expensive, the money was well spent. Like Wallbank, he claimed that the peculiar features of the survey meant that no other project could be compared with it. Not only had this process involved a lot of money that Wallbank did not have at his disposal, he had also not planned ahead as to how the land redistribution would transpire. Once the new grid was in place, existing roads would become useless, barns could be separated from fields, and sugar bushes separated from sugar shacks. The geographical and cultural logics of the original lots would be replaced by the bureaucratic logic of the rectangle and the grid. But how and when would the owners of the old lots be replaced by the owners of the new ones? Figure 6.8 shows that almost every new lot incorporated land from more than one old lot. One can only imagine the chaos at the moment of redistribution. Some people would lose land, buildings, and improvements, whereas others would gain those same things. Some lots would be valuable and others not. The idea was to give everyone an equal portion of land, but the lots were not equal in quality. Aside from geographical differences, there were also great differences in how various lots had been used during the long occupation of the site. Landowners would be paid the value of their old lots, and owners of the new ones would be indebted for any improvements found there. They would be required to pay down this debt in installments, and if they failed in this respect, the DIA would lease the lot to a third party until the debt was paid. It was thus foreseeable that some would lose land, albeit in exchange for money, whereas others would gain 30 acres of questionable quality for which they would be heavily indebted. Those who received the most compensation were those who owned land that Wallbank recognized as improved, 
with buildings, fences, and cultivated areas, and those who possessed notarized titles. Wallbank's scheme would transform the land-rich into the money-rich, although landowners felt that their improvements had been seriously undervalued and would indebt the poor for lots they did not request. One likely outcome was that former large landowners would use their compensation money to buy the land of those who could not pay their debt for it, and the inequalities would thus be perpetuated or worsened. On the surface, it appeared that the subdivision would redistribute land, but in reality, it simply caused disruption and damage to everyone while deepening existing disparities. In a context where legal forms of protest had been taken from them, Gahnawage Hironu increasingly turned to other means of opposition. Wallbank informed the DIA in September 1887 that one of his surveyors had been impeded by a number of Gahnawage Hironu who had offered obstruction to the running of the new lines of lots and also threatened personal violence. They had removed pickets and destroyed surveying marks. Wallbank accused three men. One was Tireta, on whose form Wallbank noted, This man resides here upon his land, which is very extensive. He refuses to attend here to make his statement. Tireta was listed as owning four lots totaling 194 acres in all land use categories, which were valued at $1,473. The second man was Gadara Dirdun Joseph Jacob, born in 1842, who owned an 80-acre lot, of which a significant portion was cultivated, valued at $1,804. The third man, a certain Dr. Jacobs, cannot be positively identified in the Wallbank record books. Given that two of these men were land-rich and the third was a medical doctor, losing access to firewood would probably not have been the most pressing issue for them. It is to be expected that these large landowners were opposed to losing their lands without adequate compensation, but the colonial archives do not inform of their motives for disrupting the survey. Such wealthier men were typically among the few people whom the DIA had been able to count on as allies and now the department had succeeded in alienating even them. Wallbank's final requirement for completing the long-overdue land redistribution was a fund of at least $50,000, from which to compensate owners of existing lots when their lands were transferred to new owners. His plan was that the new owners would then make payments back into the fund so that all the money would balance out in the end. Without such a fund... Wallbank felt that he could not move forward, but in May 1887, the DIA refused to gratify his request. Reluctant to concede defeat, Wallbank decided to arrange for piecemeal transfers. He staked out 16 new rectangular lots, lined up owners for each one, and asked the DIA for money to compensate them for the lots they would be giving up. The department, however, declined to make even that money available. In July, Wallbank tried again, this time proposing to transfer title for just one new lot to the relatively wealthy Ohuwa Gerha, Louis Jocko, who was willing to pay for it if the department granted him a location ticket. Perhaps as a tactical omission, Wallbank did not mention the valuable properties that Ohuwa Gerha would be giving up. 
In this way, Wallbank intended to set a precedent, but the department refused to grant Uhuwa Gerdha a title before he had been compensated for the lots he would surrender in exchange. Thus, the department was not prepared to pay to compensate owners, nor would it allow new owners to take up lots. In refusing to set aside Wallbank's $50,000 fund, DIA officials had effectively doomed the redistribution project and now had no intention of allowing it to proceed, but they did not inform Wallbank of this. They simply left him hanging, with no way to complete the job, he ended the subdivision fieldwork in December of 1887, remarking that he was extremely glad to be finished with it. He added, It is one of the most difficult and unsatisfactory surveys one could possibly have. He finished his paperwork in the spring of 1888, filing a lengthy report with Prime Minister John A. MacDonald, who was also minister responsible for the DIA. After summarizing the project to date, Wallbank explained why he needed a large fund and tried to calm financial concerns by emphasizing that if a new owner failed to pay interest on his debt, the department could lease his land to someone else until the debt was paid off. Nothing came of this proposal either, and Wallbank soon distanced himself from the project, saying he had done all he could. From then on, his correspondence with the DIA consisted of debates over the quality of his work and the amount of money he was owed. By the late 1880s, after years of enduring the uncertainty of the Wallbank survey, Gahnawa Gehronu had rightly concluded that the redistribution would never take place. On the other hand, Considering that Wallbank and the DIA had often acted without consultation or warning, perhaps some were still bracing for what came next. In November 1887, a number of Garnawagerhronu called on the department to allow them to elect chiefs, but they were told to wait until the subdivision was complete so that the Advancement Act could properly be applied to them. White farmers, who had DIA permission to live and work in Gahnawage, were also left in limbo, because they did not know from year to year whether their land would still be available in the following year. They asked the DIA in 1889 whether the subdivision would be completed that year, so that they could look for farms elsewhere if need be, but the DIA replied that nothing had been decided. The following year, Agent Brousseau, asked the department if people who were too old and weak to farm would be permitted to lease their land to white farmers and was told that they would have to wait until the land redistribution was complete. DIA officials appeared to have been strategically indifferent to the fact that so many Gahnawagehronu had to put their lives on hold for a few years while the department sorted things out. Even as the survey itself attempted to overwrite existing cultural, economic, and environmental logics, the bureaucratic cruelty and effective inefficiency of the department interfered with and disrupted Indigenous lives and livelihoods. The End of the Survey When it became clear that the subdivision would never take place, finger-pointing and blame-shifting began in earnest. The department, seeking to deflect attention from itself, discovered numerous flaws and shortcomings in Wallbank's work, and Wallbank himself blamed the difficulties of an unusual project. Both the DIA and Wallbank also blamed the Indians. 
Walbank's mistakes and omissions could be chalked up to inexperience. He had never tackled such a large, complicated project before, and it showed. But the DIA also displayed very little interest in the details of the plan until it was too late. The blame game also played out at higher levels of government. From 1887 to 1890, opposition members of Parliament frequently peppered Conservative Prime Minister John A. Macdonald and his ministers with critical questions about the project. The opposition regarded the botched survey as a liability for the government. Cyril Doyen, an independent Liberal MP who represented La Prairie, was the most vociferous critic. He had been raising questions about the Wallbank survey, but by 1890, his public demands for information on its costs, quality, and purpose could no longer be ignored. In a particularly poignant comparison, Doyon asked the government why this incomplete survey had cost $1.80 per acre when the Dominion Land Survey on the prairies cost only $0.04 per acre. In the face of such attacks, the government distanced itself and the DIA let the project die. However, Minister of the Interior Edgar Dudney, a trained engineer and land surveyor, did attempt to address Doyon's unfriendly cost comparison with the Dominion Land Survey. As he told the House of Commons in March 1890, the Wallbank Survey, was made on a petition of the Indians themselves. Of course, a survey of this character must cost a great deal more than the survey of the Dominion lands. The cost per acre of the Dominion land survey was calculated on millions of acres which had been surveyed. This survey, as the honorable gentleman knows, was cut up into small fields resembling much the appearance of this chamber, the desks representing the little holdings of the Indians. The location of every house and fence had to be surveyed, and a most complete and detailed map, equal to an ordnance map of the old country, I find has been made. Whether there was a necessity for such a detailed survey as that, I am not prepared to say. I know something about that class of work, and I can say that the map has been very well made, showing the topography of the whole reserve as well as the various holdings. Dudney's comparison of Wallbank's map to one produced by the British Ordnance Survey is particularly striking, given that the latter, a systematic, highly detailed, large-scale rendering was developed to facilitate the subjugation of the Scottish Highlanders in the 1740s. The point of his comparison was to underscore the quality and level of detail in the Wallbank survey. But it was also apt because the purpose of both surveys was the same, to subjugate and rule over another nation. As of February 1890, the total price tag for the Wallbank survey stood at over $22,000, which had been taken from the Gahnawage Fund managed by the DIA. As the department attempted to wrap up the project, Wallbank was still demanding pay for work done years before. In January 1891, the DIA paid him the final $3,000 he was owed, even though Gahnawage's account was empty. The money was loaned to the Gahnawage Band Fund by the Tamiskaming and Sarnia Chippewa Band accounts, probably without permission from those communities themselves. After carefully examining Wallbank's work in September 1890, 
W.A. Austin concluded that it had been shoddy and suggested that the department not hire him again. When Austin resurveyed the southwestern boundary of the reserve in 1894, he encountered stiff resistance from white landowners who had enjoyed the status quo, which had allowed them to encroach on the reserve. He came to believe that Wallbank had abandoned the boundary survey because of this same resistance. In 1893, the land redistribution had still not occurred, and most people realized that it never would, but Van Kugnet still believed. Clearly irate about the department's failure, he placed the blame squarely on the Indians. The occupants of the old locations, he claimed, cling to the possession of the same and are unwilling to part with any portion thereof. He also seemed baffled that landless Kahnawage Hironu showed no special anxiety to acquire the 30-acre allotments. He drew on the trope of the complaining, ungrateful, fickle Indian to distract from the culpability of his own department. Although the department had, according to Van Kugnet, done its part in agreeing to grant location tickets to anyone who paid for the improvements on the new lots. Individual Gahnawagehronu had not pulled their weight. There is no hint in Van Kugnet's report that the department might bear any blame for forcing an ill-conceived project on an unwilling community that the band fund had been depleted and that DIA action and inaction had caused untold damage. In 1893, Van Kugnet was forced into early retirement, and he seemed determined to make the redistribution a reality before he left. Since it now appeared hopeless to expect voluntary action on the part of Gahnawage Hironu, he asked the Gahnawage Indian agent to inform those who have more land than they are entitled to that they should be prepared to give up surplus land. Those who had little or no land should be prepared to pay the agent for improvements on their new lots. Large landowners would be given first choice of lots. That Van Kugnet was promoting such an unworkable idea years after Wallbank had left the field suggests that he was truly disconnected from the real world. Perhaps in much the same way that his department was often disconnected from and uninterested in indigenous realities. Van Kugnen's replacement, Hader Reed, made Gahnawage one of his first priorities after taking up the position. In December 1893, he met with Gahnawage chiefs, who demanded to be compensated for the band funds spent on the Wallbank survey. He said he could not give them money outright, but he promised to enlarge and renovate the school, improve roads and bridges, and pay for the cost of evicting trespassers. All of this, of course, was subject to parliamentary approval of his budget, and there is no evidence that the money was ever forthcoming. Thus, Kahnawage paid for a subdivision survey that it did not want, one that was never truly completed and did not accomplish what it intended. It had certainly failed to impose formalized colonial land ownership norms in time for the construction of the CPR bridge. Nevertheless, the survey had allowed the DIA to define, number, map, categorize, and value existing lots, and the tribunal claims process enabled the DIA to name, number, categorize, and value, in the sense of defining who owned property, Gahnawage Hronu. 
Kahnawake itself had succeeded in preventing its own destruction by way of subdivision and enfranchisement. But the survey data still permitted the DIA bureaucracy to better view, understand, and control the community. Eventually, these data would enable the department to impose the band council system, as we shall see in Chapter 7. Thus, even with its failures and shortcomings, the Wallbank survey is still a classic example of, in the words of historian Raymond Crabe, a state's fixation with proprietal transparency. Nation states always want to know and control property transactions. In the case of indigenous communities, the settler state had first to create the private property that it wished to know and control, even as it contributed to uncertainty, tension, and inequality in Gahnawage. The Wallbank survey was instrumental in the formation, surveillance, and control of private property. Conclusion Identifying the Wallbank survey as a land redistribution scheme does not capture the full extent of its ambitions. It was no less than an attempt to destroy an indigenous nation and erase its people's ways of relating to each other and the earth. Even though it did not fully succeed, it had significant damaging consequences for Gahnawage sovereignty. Settler observers rarely acknowledged that Gahnawage land law and practices had their own logic and organization, namely, that individuals should be limited in their ability to profit from lands and wood, and that the community as a whole should benefit. One thing Canada's colonial elite were sure about was that communal indigenous ways of relating to land were backward and harmful. Liberal MP and former Superintendent General of Indian Affairs David Mills expressed it this way, There was one thing that impressed itself very strongly upon my mind, and that was the mischievous effects that flow from allowing the Indians on the various reservations in the old provinces to hold their lands in common. The Wallbank Survey was one important step in imposing the legal and ethical notion that land and resources should be treated as commodities for the benefit of certain individuals. The survey was designed to reshape property and land relations to the detriment of Gahnawage law and the dish-with-one-spoon commons that it upheld. In this, it bears many similarities to the earlier enclosure of common land in England. Most English commoners had depended heavily on common lands to supply food and raw materials because they lacked enough cultivated acreage to meet their needs. When common land was enclosed, many could no longer sustain themselves and were forced off of their lands. Likewise, land poor Gahnawage Hironu relied on common access to firewood, which was cut off once the DIA replaced Gahnawage commons with a form of private property. The Wallbank survey helped to make these changes more concrete and enforceable. Although it did not attain some of its most ambitious goals, it did succeed in transforming land into commoditized lots, and it further enabled the punishment of people who wished to follow Gahnawage land law. The ideological rhetoric used to justify the subdivision of Gahnawage was not unlike that used to justify enclosure in England. Late 18th century English proponents of enclosure sometimes even compared English commoners to North American indigenous people. 
in their view, allowing commoners to wastefully manage lands and resources was irresponsible, given that wealthier landowners could administer them more efficiently. Promoters of enclosure assumed that indigenous land use, like that of English commoners, was primitive, bestial, and profligate, and they believed it wrong to leave the land and its inhabitants in such conditions. Common lands provided food and material that did not need to be cultivated, and improvers saw this production in negative terms, tantamount to thievery and pillage. Enclosing common lands was said to increase their productivity by placing larger portions under the control of one enterprising farmer. It also supposedly enhanced the productivity of the dispossessed, who were now required to exchange their labor for wages. Kahnawage chiefs in the 1870s recognized that a subdivision survey would likewise cut off their most vulnerable people from the land and its bounty, and they repeatedly refused the survey because they did not believe that such an enclosure was in the interest of their nation. Likewise, the Wallbank survey is best understood in light of Canada's rapid westward and northward territorial expansion. In the 1880s, the DIA was preoccupied with the thousands of Indigenous people who lived beyond the Great Lakes, onto whose territory Canada was imposing itself. In contravention of long-standing nation-to-nation agreements, protocols, and treaties, the Canadian states sought to speed the destruction of Indigenous political structures, cultural cohesion, and territories, allowing white settlers to appropriate the land and impose their law. Canada confined First Nations on reserves, tore families apart with residential schools, and ensured that they could not participate in the emerging settler economy. But the next step was to dismantle the reserves by parceling them into individual lots that would be owned as private property by enfranchised former Indians. The Wallbank server was a trial run for this larger plan, an attempt to set a precedent for how to enfranchise an entire community and transform its territory into private property. It should also be viewed in light of the United States allotment policies of the late 19th century, and specifically the 1887 Dawes Act, which broke up Indian reservations and transferred the land to white settlers, undermined Indigenous sovereignty, and deprived Indigenous people of their land and wealth. Although the purpose of the Wallbank survey was not explicitly to transfer land to white settlers, the outcome would have been similar if the land redistribution and mass enfranchisement had succeeded, since the land would have then become available to anyone with money. The survey had indeed undermined Gahnawage law and ways of life, but Gahnawage Hirono were able to stop its most destructive elements from being implemented. Whereas land ownership and land use were rooted in Gahnawage law and in ever-evolving relationships between community members, Wallbank's cadastral map froze a particular moment in time, imposed a settler-colonial understanding of land, and served to preserve and privilege the boundaries it demarcated. Wallbank's projected property grid never became reality, but the existing lots were defined, numbered, mapped, categorized, and valued. The people of Gahnawage were likewise defined, named, numbered, categorized, and valued, 
and the DIA then used this information to impose the band council system in 1889 and to attempt to rigidly define, according to the Indian Act, who had the right to belong and who did not. According to its own estimate, the DIA considered Wallbank's work incomplete, sloppy, and unreliable, yet his survey became the basis of both the existing cadastre and the band membership list. In 1894, Hayter Reed declared, This department has accepted as correct the survey performed by Mr. Wallbank on that reserve, as well as his plan of the same. What mattered to the DIA was not the accuracy of its data, as much as projecting authority and control, something it has struggled to do ever since. For detail and precision, the Wallbank survey could not match the Ordnance survey, but it was very much like it in the way it aimed to colonize and subjugate a sovereign nation. <laughs> 